Welcome to Tap In, Waterloo Region's newest community podcast brought to you by Social Venture Partners. I am your host, Rose Greensides, and over the next three months, we will take you on a journey where we will tap into real social issues facing real people in our region. Joining me will be other community leaders where together we promise to inspire you to be part of the solution. Joining me today as co-host is Maranisa Parodia, Operations and Engagement Manager here at SVP. Thanks for leading this episode with me, Maranisa. Thanks for having me. Today we're tapping into what the United Nations has deemed to be number two in their social development goals, ending hunger. So it's fitting we have Wendy Campbell, CEO of the Food Bank of Waterloo Region. Welcome, Wendy. Hi. It's great to have you on the show today. Wendy, before we start, how long have you been with, I was trying to think about how long you have been with the food bank, and I I just couldn't figure it out. I, it will be 23 years this fall that I have been working at the food bank of Waterloo Region. Wow. Amazing. Okay. So you're going to share lots of insight with us. This will be fun. So just to get started, I was thinking about food security in, in my own head, and I was thinking of this very long lineage with you know, starting with people who worry about running out of food, all the way to people going days without food, and then, of course, everything in between. Can you expand on that trajectory for us a bit? Yeah, so I think the interesting thing about food security or food insecurity is is sort of understanding the definition. And there are a lot of different definitions floating around. The way we look at it from a food bank perspective and as we connect with our community food assistance network when we're, we're talking about our programs and services and longer term solutions, for us, household food insecurity is about not having adequate or secure income to be able to get food. Households need to have good financial supports around them to be able to access food in our society. And so food insecurity is inadequate and insecure access to food because of financial constraints. And I think that's, for us, that's the most important part. But there's also different levels of food insecurity. So marginal food insecurity is worrying about running out of food, worried about limited selection of food because you don't have the money to purchase what you might want to purchase. Then moderate food insecurity is compromising in quality or quantity of food because you don't have the money to buy the food. And then severe food insecurity is when individuals or families are actually at a point where they're missing meals, where they're reducing their food intake. And in the most extreme cases could be going days, like you said, days without food. So there's just, there's so many different levels of the issue for many of us. We talk a lot about the early days of the pandemic and going into a grocery store and not having a choice, not being able to pick the chickpeas that we normally would buy because they just weren't available on the shelf, but being able to look further down the shelf and buying maybe the more expensive chickpeas because those were available. For many, many families in our community, they weren't able to make those choices because they didn't have the financial resources to make those choices. And Wendy, on the topic of food insecurity, many people think of it as a faraway problem, but really it's right here in our backyard. Right. Here. Are you able to speak to the topic with a Canadian lens and then bring it 
more local to Waterloo region. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, across Canada, I think a lot of our, especially our food bank partners across the country, we, we sort of have the same definition and, and really talk about the tight link to income and knowing that, you know, the key factor in people accessing supports and services is typically a decline in that income. And as incomes decline, food insecurity does increase. Before the pandemic, an estimated 4.5 million Canadians experience some kind of food insecurity. So across that spectrum that I just talked about between marginal and severe, 4.5 million Canadians. In the first two months of the pandemic, that number grew by 39%. And so if you put it into sort of, you know, if you, it's hard to picture that large number of people in our country, it really equates to one in seven people in Canada were feeling some level of food insecurity. One in seven. That's crazy. That seems like such a large number. And Wendy, just rifting on like the those millions of people, is it true that only one out of five households that are food insecure access food banks? Yeah. And depending on, on where they are in the country and the range of supports that are available in our community, yes, definitely. And we talked to participants even in our own community about, you know, at what point would you access a program? And, and I've had so many conversations with people who have said, well, I really could use some extra help but I feel like there's people who need it more than I do. So I will just adapt. I will change my diet. I will make different choices. I've talked to people who have actually missed meals because they feel that there's people in our community who need it more than they do, which is crazy. And in terms of in our community. Last year, in 2020-2021, we served more than 34,000 individuals right here in Waterloo Region. We saw a 26% increase in the amount of food that we were distributing. And last fall, so from October to December last year, our network, our 100 community partners throughout our region that are providing food support services, saw an 80% increase in new households who were accessing services. So the depth of need and the change in the need in this community is something that we're watching very carefully as those income levels continue to shift and change and are having an impact on families' budgets. Adding to that, Wendy, one of the things that I read was there's no typical person that accesses a food bank. Are you able to touch on that? How much time do we have? You know, it. you're absolutely right. I think that there is sort of some, some stigma attached to food assistance and social service programs. And, and there's an assumption that, you know, it's, it's a certain type of person or a certain situation that has led people to access food assistance. In this community, we have individuals and families who are working, who access food assistance, whether it be full-time jobs, part-time jobs. We see a lot of individuals who are accessing food assistance because of precarious employment. Think about the last couple of years and, and people that you might know who have had hours of work reduced, who have been laid off for certain periods of time. I, I think a lot about retail workers and restaurant workers, workers who work in large sport and entertainment venues who just didn't have the hours of work available to them for the last two years. We talk a lot about that in terms of precarious employment, employment where there isn't stable income. So although you have a job, 
you don't have the stability in your income to be able to make those choices when you're trying to feed yourself. We work with individuals and families who are on social assistance, who are accessing social service programs, social support programs, maybe Ontario disability supports. They're unable to work because of a disability. We work with a number of programs who are supporting individuals who have no income who are, you know, we talk a lot about our homeless and outreach program supports in this community and how phenomenal the work they've done over the last couple of years. There is no income for a lot of those individuals for so many reasons. And then when you dig a little deeper into why people are accessing services and, you know, we very rarely get into the stories. It's really hard for somebody to tell a story when they're in the moment, that when they're just trying to make ends meet, to feed their families, to, to continue on with their lives. But later on, when we chat with people about why they needed to access a food program, sometimes it's because of a family breakdown. It could be because of divorce. It could be because of healthcare issues within the family. We've talked to a number of people who have changed their employment situation to become a caregiver to an elderly relative or to a partner or to a child. There's obviously job loss. We've seen so much of that happen. We've seen layoffs happen. There's just so many reasons and so many causes that are connected to food insecurity. And it's not the person that you stereotypically think are asking for help. You would be very, very surprised, I think, in your own neighborhood, on your own street, who is accessing or needs to access emergency food assistance. For sure. And you kind of touched on it with current trends, but I do have a friend who works in supply chain at a major grocer. And one of the things we actually chatted about just last week is Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the impact the situation is going to have on the food supply chain and prices. This is something I hadn't even occurred to me, but she explained it. And a lot of it is around fertilizers, but with this and the pandemic, can you speak to how this has affected your work and things that are being done to prepare for a potential worst case scenario? I feel like at the beginning of the pandemic, I, I became the local supply chain expert. I didn't think that was going to be part of my job, <laughs> but you know what? It's something it is is something that we've had our eye on right from the beginning. We we were really fortunate as a food assistance network, as a food bank, that we actually had a pandemic plan in place before COVID. And we had sort of dusted off that plan. So we were really prepared uh, the best we could be prepared for what we've seen in the last couple of years. But a piece of that plan was about monitoring the supply chain. We knew that any emergency that happens in our community, in our province, in our country, in the world will ultimately have an impact on supply chains. And so that was a big piece of our emergency plan was to monitor it. I don't think we anticipated the extent of what we're seeing. So we've seen obviously rising costs of food that's impacted our ability to bring supplies into the food bank. And we've had a ton of contingency plans to make sure that that is seamless. We've seen issues in supply chains where there's been gaps in types of food that are available. So we've had to do a lot of pivoting. We did a lot of sort of pre-ordering of product just to make sure that we had the supplies when we needed it. And we did end up with some surplus of a certain number of items because we were really proactive that we were able to distribute more quantity out through our network, which is amazing. But I think that supply chain issues are actually going to have an impact too 
on on the average citizen in our community. And and that's some of the piece that worries me. If if the food prices are going up because of supply chain issues and global instability, that's going to ultimately have an impact on a family's budget. So if you are already feeling a little food insecure, but you're adapting and managing, as those prices go up, your ability to adapt and manage actually reduces. Then let's layer on the housing challenges that we're seeing in this community too. So now you're seeing increased rent, you're seeing, uh, you know, challenges accessing housing in general and having to pay more than your budget has probably prepared for. So let's layer that on top of supply chain issues and food prices that are rising. Now you're feeling even more food insecure because that budget is shrinking even more. So all of these troubling trends, and we've been talking a lot about this as the perfect storm. So food prices, precarious employment, housing costs, changes in wages, All of these are now bubbling up and coming together, and they're going to have a pretty big impact. We're already seeing that significant increase in new households who are accessing our services. We as a network are preparing for even more increases this calendar year because these things are not getting any better anytime soon. So just continuing on that piece, because everywhere you go, prices are rising, but, you know, food prices increasing five to seven percent affects everybody, right? All Canadian households. Are there any policies that are coming up considering there's an election coming up or, you know, good success stories from around the world on how people are trying to curb this issue? Like Waterloo Region is so innovative. There's got to be things that we can think about on how we can navigate the storm. When you're working in this crazy environment that we've been working in for the last couple of years, that this becomes the hard part. I was talking to a partner not long ago and I said, you know, it's, you know, now's the time. We have learned so much in the last two years about systems and supports and how we need to deliver services and what the needs are of the community. It's, it's, I almost feel like this is our moment. Food has always been that thing that sort of flies under the radar. You know, there's people have always been incredibly generous and supported food programs and the food's always there. And we tend to sort of zoom in on policy issues on, on sort of the bigger things like housing, um, like employment supports. We don't talk a lot about food. And, and one of the conversations we had was maybe now is now is our time lessons learned during COVID, let's get sort of jump on that advocacy bandwagon and talk about things that need to change. And the feedback I'm getting from some of our partners is we don't have time. We are so busy meeting the immediate needs of what people need on the front lines of our programs. We don't have time to think about the advocacy pieces. And so that's where we're incredibly fortunate uh, to be partnered with Feed Ontario and Food Banks Canada. And we have actually been feeding a lot of our stories and a lot of the data that we've collected locally to be part of a bigger provincial and national conversation about some of the things that need to change. And there's no easy solution. Um, but we can start chipping away at things. And, uh, and I'll give an example of some of the changes that happened to childcare benefits after the last election. We saw um, significant changes in how people, how families with children were accessing services because there was more income coming into the household because of changes in benefits. We believe, hoping that we're going to start to see a change as some of these new child care initiatives um, come into play. And if people can actually reduce their child care costs or that 
women moms, because I think this is going to have the greatest impact on the moms are going to be able to go back to work to find decent better paying employment because they have increased access to childcare. All of those things actually start to ladder up to improving lives in our community. And I think it's really important for us as, as charity partners is to, to collect those stories, to collect that data. Sometimes we get you know, we get a lot of grief about, you know, we don't want to ask questions. We don't want to answer questions. We don't want our information being part of, you know, your data. We just need your support. All of the data we collect is, is anonymous. It's never attached to any name. And that data is absolutely essential to us being part of these bigger provincial and national political and policy conversations that are going to help make long lasting change. And it starts with policy, but it actually starts with awareness on why those policies and those things need to shift and change. It's interesting how it all weaves together. You know, when we think about just the $10 a day daycare, the significance that could make just on, you know, on all of these pieces. I want to talk a little bit about sort of more of the ripple effect. So I'm sure all of our listeners have been hungry at some point. You know, my kids call me the gremlin when I get hungry, you know, it affects my mood, all of that piece. And then you think about people not eating for days. The social, mental and physical effects must be far reaching. Absolutely. And and we you're right. We've all we have all experienced. We know what it's like to feel hungry. We also have all in the last couple of years experienced what it feels like to go and access food that isn't available. So, you know, the panic that we saw in in some of the grocery stores, in the big box stores where there were empty shelves, we all felt that panic. For so many of us, we were able to adapt and pivot and it was okay For so many families, they weren't able to adapt and pivot. And so then you add that on the impacts of missing meals, the impacts of unhealthy diets. Mental health has been such a huge, huge, huge conversation throughout this pandemic for all of us. But let's add the mental health outcomes on individuals and families, especially kids, if they're not getting proper nutrition. We know that hunger is absolutely related to poor health outcomes. So higher risks of depression, higher risk of, you know, chronic conditions, asthma, diabetes. We also know that food insecurity is linked to birth defects, anemia, cognitive problems, aggression, anxiety. There's just so many things that are connected to health and mental health and physical health when food and nutrition are compromised. And then you add on the stress of not having adequate housing, not having adequate childcare, not being able to secure adequate incomes for your families because there's other barriers. You add that on to sort of the physical effects of not eating well. Talk about a perfect storm. We're heading into a time where we're going to be dealing with more than food insecurity. We're dealing with a pretty significant health crisis. Yeah. And as you mentioned, perfect storm. And it makes me think of, as Rose mentioned at the top of the podcast, how hunger was number two on the UN's SDGs. Number one is poverty. And there's so much connection there. And from there, as we 
start to think about wrapping up this podcast, Wendy, can you share any stories about this community that has rallied together to show solidarity in helping their neighbors through these tough times? We are so lucky, so lucky to live in in this community and in this country. You know, when you talk about, you know, the the UN goals and, and we've looked at, you know, some of the, the zero hunger goals and the reality is that the world as a whole is not on track to achieving zero hunger by 2030. It's a great goal. I think there's a there's a lot of passion and a lot of work being done, but we're we're just not there. And you know, over, worldwide hunger is, is such a big issue. And but in this community, we're dealing with it the best we can. And a a lot of the ways that we are dealing with it is because of the outstanding support of our community, whether it be food donations or financial donations or volunteers who are supporting this network of programs. And here in Waterloo Region, we have more than 100 community programs that are collaborating together to provide frontline supports and services to individuals and families. It's just such an amazing network of support. We all have our roles to play. The food bank, our two food banks are actually at the center of the network, and we've even defined our roles and responsibilities. So we're being really effective and efficient on how we operate this system. And we're making sure that no one goes hungry. There are supports available. We have contingency plans for, you know, the growth that we're expecting to see over the last year. It's an amazing, amazing amount of work that's being done by so many people. And I'd be remiss without saying a huge thank you to this community, to our staff teams and our network, to our volunteers, and to the just the community who supports all of this work financially. We are making a difference in this community, but now is the time to start having bigger conversations about what else we can do, what is next, how can we change systems and structures. And unfortunately, a lot of the work is is national and global. And, you know, what we're doing in Waterloo Region to solve a problem may not have, you know, global implications, but at least we know that we are making sure no one's going hungry right now. We're giving people the supports and the resources they need to strive for a better life. And that's that's something. And you talked about roles to play and you know how great that you're working with other networks in the community. Can you bring that down to the listeners? One of the things I promised when we started the podcast was that we would provide things for people to do to be part of the solution. So when you think of just, you know, somebody listening who has learned a lot about this issue, but wants to give back, maybe something small or whether it's volunteering, community gardens, that sort of thing. Are there some tangible things listeners can do to, again, help us achieve that goal? Maybe it's not unattainable. I'm the I'm the supreme optimist, Wendy. We can get there. Oh, you know what? I think the first thing is thank you for listening. I think the most important thing we can do as a society is, is listen and understand the issues. And I would also say understand the issues from reliable sources. We know that one of the things we definitely all learned in the last couple of years is is social media has definite pros and cons. I always encourage to make sure that people are getting the right information from really good sources of information. Sometimes, you know, a social media feed is is not accurate, isn't telling a whole story. So make sure you're getting the whole story and educate yourself about what's happening in your community, but also, you know, in other parts of the world. 
And then figure out where your passion lies and what you can do. For us in Waterloo Region, you know, we always say there's a range of ways people can help. If you have an hour of time to volunteer, to come to the food bank to sort food, that well, right now, that's a, our most needed thing. I'm just going to throw that out there. We have a lot of food support to sort. So an hour of food sorting goes a really long way. If you can make a small financial donation to a program in our network who might be struggling with basic needs or with housing or with provisions for shelter care, that also makes a big difference. If you can make a larger financial contribution and be a long-term sponsor, that has a huge impact. It doesn't matter how large or small your gift is, whether it be time, whether it be a gift of food at a grocery store, whether it be a financial donation, it is the strength and support of this community and all those little pieces coming together that makes a huge difference. It gives us as organizations some stability and some strength to know that we can keep moving and we can keep chipping away at the longer term solutions and at those root causes why we're delivering the service. And how great is it when we hear feedback from individuals? And we've had so many great stories in the last two years from people who have received a food hamper, who have received a community meal, who have reached out to us and said, thank you to the food bank. Thank you to the program who served the hamper, who served the meal. And thank you to the community donor who helped make that happen. This meal was the best meal I've eaten in weeks, the most nutritious meal I've had in months. I know I don't have to worry because the community is here to support me. And that in itself is, is why we do this work and why we have this phenomenal network of support in Waterloo Region. Love it. And we're certainly lucky to have you, Wendy, here leading that. I've learned so much today. I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you both to Wendy and Marinisa for your time. That was, that was a great episode. And uh, again, Wendy, thank you for all that you do in our community. Thank you for having me. So, Marinisa, this is our last episode of season one. How are you feeling? It felt like it flew by. Agreed. Totally. And it was was a good experience. We learned quite a bit. And one of the things we could not have done is we could not have produced a high-quality podcast without the fantastic editing of Johnny Studios. We're based out of Waterloo. If you are interested in starting a podcast, check with them. I've linked their website in the show notes. And if you've looked at our logo, Rose is right on our logo, isn't she? And that final shout out goes to Jesse Barkley, who came through with that amazing podcast logo. That's something that I didn't know how to do. I don't think Rose, we're not the artistic types, but she did some great work. And I've also linked her information in our show notes. So please check them out. Would you like to hear season two? If so, give us a rating on your podcast listening app or reach out to Marinisa and I. We'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions for next topics. So stay tuned for a potential season two. This is Rose Greensides, host of Tap In, brought to you by Social Venture Partners. <laughs>